Is that on? Is that better? Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we do need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. Our relationship with the Lord after salvation is defined by the word walk. Walk is a concept of walking together with the Lord. This is a tremendous picture for us of fellowship. The basic meaning of the Greek word is to be involved in a common goal, a common pursuit, walking together uh, pictures that. But when we sin, that walk together uh, stops. We're not walking with the Lord anymore. We're walking according to our sin nature. So the scripture says that we are to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin. Uh, We don't have to have remorse. We don't have to feel sorry for it uh, because the sin's been paid for at the cross. We're not paying for it again. We are simply to admit or acknowledge our sin. It's a teaching aid to focus our thinking upon the sin that's in our life. When we confess sin, God immediately forgives us of those sins and then cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to begin, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come together tonight to think about some of these important things that we need to understand this year, this election year in our country. We begin by thinking about you, just some basics, fundamentals, understanding that our view of you should change and shape how we think about everything else. The more we read about you and your word, the more we understand what you have I've disclosed to us in your word. The more we come to understand you and the more we come to understand your creation, the purpose for your creation, the purpose for your creating us in your image and likeness, and the reason that history has a destiny, what that destiny is and the purpose for that. And all of these things comprise our our view of reality. And Father, we know that it's grounded in you. So we pray that tonight as we study, we'll think more about that. We'll reflect more about it and we'll look at the scriptures. Father, we pray for this year for our president, for the election this year, the direction of our nation, the direction of our country. We pray for our president in the midst of so many challenges Uh, always true for any president, but these seem more dire, more significant, more uh, of a nature that directly affects each of us. We pray for his wisdom. We pray that you might give clarity to his counselors and for those who wish to guide and direct him in a wrong direction. We pray that you would foil, befuddle their counsel so that it, it falls to the ground. Now, Father, we pray for us tonight as we focus that you'll help us to 
See what a remarkable thing it is that we live in this nation. What a blessing from you. Uh, because of the founding fathers, because of the way they thought, because of the way they understood reality, they created something on this continent that has never before existed in human history and will be the, probably the best that ever exists until our Lord Jesus Christ comes and establishes his kingdom. And Father, we pray that you'd give us insight into that to this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we began this new series, How Should We Then Vote? This year is a voting year. Every two years, we vote, but every fourth year, we vote for president, and we vote for uh, several other significant and important local officials as well as state officials. We need to make know how to make a decision on a biblical basis if we are believers. And tonight we're going to look at the essential of what I ended with last week, defining a Judeo-Christian worldview, coming to understand that. Our starting point last week was just a couple of verses from the Proverbs. Proverbs are books, is a book that presents these wise sayings. Now we have to understand what wisdom is. In the Bible, wisdom is the ability to think and to live skillfully. The starting point is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we want to be wise, we have to understand who the Lord is. We have to understand that makeup. That is what was so important in the, among the founding fathers is even though they were not all uh, believers, even though they were not all devout, in their faith, even though some were not quite orthodox biblically in their faith, the vast majority were, especially if we understand how many were involved in that category that we call the founding fathers. And so last time we started with this scripture, Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And so we have to understand that if we are going to be a successful nation, a nation that is prosperous, a nation that is able to uh, uh, provide the essentials for, for, a, for its people, and we need to talk about those and will eventually, then it's grounded upon this concept of righteousness. Uh, it is the same word used in the Greek, I mean, excuse me, used in the Hebrew for both Justice and righteousness. We hear a lot of talk about social justice today. Well, the issue for the Christian is never social justice. That is not a biblical category. It's biblical justice. And if biblical justice is foundational to a nation, then that nation will have be a blessing to its people. The contrast is sin. So these are absolute categories. The problem we have today, as we're going to see, is that we live in a world that Today, the citizenry of the United States no longer holds to a Judeo-Christian worldview, which was the worldview of the Founding Fathers, the worldview that, def that, that informed the founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, uh, many of the initial laws, such as the Bill of Rights, the amendments to the Constitution that uh, were, were part of that founding generation, and what I'm going to show you tonight and next week as well is that if you have a foundation, foundational documents that are built on a Judeo-Christian worldview, 
it will only work with the citizenry that has a Judeo-Christian worldview. That if the citizenry does not have a Judeo-Christian worldview, it won't work. Because you can't fit that square peg into a round hole. It won't work. And the founding fathers understood that. We'll get into that a little bit more when we get into the ethics aspect next, uh, next Thursday night. So we have this foundational assumption of righteousness. Well, where do we get our idea of righteousness? A lot of people today talk about justice, justice for the poor, justice for the uh, disenfranchised, justice for the minorities. What do they mean by justice? Where do they get their ideas of right and wrong, good and bad? Uh, does that come from the Bible? Does it come from their own opinions? Is it something that is the result of a consensus of the people? Well, what happens when that consensus changes in another 10 years? Uh, many of us can remember a time, uh, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, when there was an extremely strong consensus in this country about the nature of marriage, that marriage was between one man and one woman, and yet uh, recently that's changed. Well, that's not based on an external absolute. That's based on just the changing uh, views of the populace. So if the majority is always right, and I don't think that's true, the majority is usually never right, uh, you, you ha but there is, has to be an external source of right and wrong. And if there isn't, then it's always subject to change. It's always uncertain. There's no, you can't have confidence in that. And this is part of the problem. So we will be developing that as we go forward. Psalm 11.3, I think, is the focal point of this whole series. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so we're looking at what these foundations are. What are the foundational elements that were present in the thinking of the Founding Fathers? For if we don't think as they thought, we cannot understand the nature of what it is that they wrote. We have to get inside their heads. We have to think as they thought. If we are going to achieve the ideals for this nation, for the United States of America, and if we don't operate on those foundations, then the nation will crumble. And we will substitute all kinds of other things and call it freedom and call it liberty, but it really isn't. So we have to take a careful steps and walk through this whole, this whole situation. I started last time talking about a worldview. What exactly is a worldview? Well, a worldview is the often unseen belief system that is the lens through which every person looks at the world around them, tries to make sense of the universe around them. A, a worldview shapes a culture. It shapes and defines our relationships. It shapes and determines our values, our ideas of right and wrong. It, it is... Uh, foundational to our belief system, and our belief system shapes, in turn, our worldview. It's a lens through which we see things. It's a grid through which we are able to evaluate things and to uh, interpret the events and the activities around us. Everyone has a worldview. 
I remember talking to a man some years ago, and he said, and I had at that time I said philosophy of life because that's what a worldview is. The uh, the German word Weltanschauung was uh, was one that came into vogue in the early 20th century out of German philosophy. And um, I had made the comment, I said, everybody's got a philosophy of life. And they said, I don't. I, I said, well, then your philosophy of life is an unthought through and uh, an uncritically determined uh, hodgepodge of different things. I knew that wasn't true because he was a believer, but he, he, there are a lot of people like that. They just haven't ever really thought about their worldview, how they look at life and to see how everything they believe fits together or is oriented to one another. And so everybody has a worldview. Some people have analyzed and thought through their worldview, and other people have not. The foundation that the Scripture is talking about is, the, is this worldview that, that determines our, how we understand our meaning and purpose of life. As part of that, it includes our social relationships. When we think about politics, politics is the set of beliefs or principles for organizing or governing a community or a society. Those are our social relationships, and is part, and that is part of our worldview. Now, as we have seen, I use this illustration of a of an iceberg where we have. Uh, about 80% of the iceberg is below the surface of the water and is unseen, and there's just a small amount that is above. And that's how a worldview is. It, it really is that which lies unseen and invisible behind the opinions that we have, the beliefs we hold, the values we, uh, we hold to. And there's four basic areas in, uh, in a worldview. And this is also the four basic areas of philosophy. Sometimes when you talk about philosophy, people get all scared and they're, they get mentally, uh, get mentally uptight. But it's just basic things like what do you think the ultimate reality is? And this is the question about, about God. Or is matter eternal? Is God eternal? Is there at the helm of the universe a an infinite personal being, or is, at, is it just the universe itself? A phrase I frequently hear, I'm sure you frequently hear it as well, somebody says, well, the universe just didn't shine on me today. Well, they're attributing some sort of personality to impersonal matter, which is the universe. The universe is nothing more than uh, particles of matter that some, in some places they've adhered together and you have stars, you have planets, you have uh, comets and asteroids and other things that are in in the universe. And if that's all there is, then, then how can imp something impersonal provide the basis for meaning and purpose? How can you even talk about the concept of, of personhood? The next level is knowledge. How do we know that? So if you say, well, I believe that the universe is, is infinite and eternal, and that's all there is, is just this impersonal force or something that's out there, but it has no real intellect, it doesn't have will. How do you know that? 
that's this area. How do we determine that? How does that affect our understanding of who we are as human beings? How does it determine who we are in terms of do we have an immaterial soul or not? Uh, It determines our view of what happens after death. All of these things are part of this. And so if we hold to a Christian worldview, we're going to have different answers than if we don't. We'll talk about each of these as we go through the evening. Then we have the concept of ethics or what is right or wrong, uh, what is good, what is bad. We make these value judgments all the time. Every time you turn on the news and you hear some politician say something, you say that's right or that's wrong, that's good, that's bad. Every time you do that, you're appealing to some set of standards. Well, it's at this level. Notice how we're getting close to the surface here. It's at this level where we have to determine what our, what our set of values are, what our absolutes are, what our norms are, what our standards are. Where do they come from? Well, they come ultimately, as we see in the, in the chart, from our view of ultimate reality. Now, a lot of people hold to one set of ethics that has absolutely nothing to do with what they think is ultimate reality. There are a lot of Christians like that. They believe that there's a God. They basically believe in a Judeo-Christian worldview in a very broad sense, but they're not observant. They're not devout. They don't go to church. They don't seem concerned at all with their spiritual life, and they live like an unbeliever. They live like a pagan. This was a problem many times in the history of Israel. So you can have people who claim to have one worldview They live like they have another worldview. That's inconsistency. If we are believers, we need to make sure that the views that we have of our knowledge, a view that we have of ethics, and the final area up here at the top, we have politics, because that's our topic. It comes out of our view of ethics. But technically, in in, uh, philosophy and in understanding a worldview, it's what is known as aesthetics or beauty. And we need to talk about each one of these this evening as we go forward. So uh, the application of this is the logical sequence is on the left side. So we, when we think it through, we need to really understand our concept of ultimate reality because that, if we're consistent, that shapes a specific view of knowledge or truth. And then that shapes a specific value system and then that's going to shape what you think about how a nation should be run, how it should be governed, how it should be administered. But the reality is, is that uh, we talk and argue at the top level, and we never talk about what's down uh, below the surface. So last time when I ended, I gave you, I misnumbered them again tonight, I misnumbered these, I added a point. So I gave you five points for a Judeo-Christian worldview And I revised that today, and so we've got six points. The the reason I'm doing this is because when you look at a lot of worldview books, last week I talked about James Sire's uh, worldview book, The Universe Next Door. And I, I recommend that, especially for high school kids or college kids, university students, those who just graduate before they go off to uh, university or college, uh, they need to read this book. It will help them understand a lot of things. And so I recommend that. If you've got Logos, I just discovered today that it's av- the most recent edition is available 
in Logos uh, Bible software. So we, we looked at that, and I mentioned his views, his categories of a Christian theism. That was his first category. A theistic worldview is roughly equivalent to a Judeo-Christian worldview. But you have a theistic worldview that would be uh, more Jewish. You have a Christian theistic worldview. Also talked about uh, George Barna's survey, which sadly showed that you have a very small number of of Christians, so-called Christians in a broad sense, not just evangelicals, but you have a, a very small number, small percentage of people who claim to be Christians who even know what a Christian worldview is, much less believe it or live on the basis of it. So this is, this is important. The reason I emphasize this and call this a Judeo-Christian worldview is because when we look at the founding fathers, we don't want to say they had a Christian worldview because some of them were not orthodox. Some of them did not believe in the Trinity. I think people like John Adams, who later became later in life became Unitarian. When he was young, he was brought up in an Orthodox Calvinist church in Boston. Had a very solid Reformed theology background, very Orthodox. But he changed as he grew as he grew older. Now Unitarianism at that time wasn't what it is today. Uh, so, but it, it was a biblically unorthodox view of Christ and salvation. Now, that's important because not every founding father had an orthodox view of God. Not every founding father believed in the Trinity. Not every founding father believed in the uh, personal redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that Christ died for our sins, and by believing in him, you can have eternal life. But they thought they thought within this broader Judeo-Christian worldview. And we know that next time we'll probably look at the study that Donald Lutz did at the University of Houston back in the early 80s, which demonstrated that the primary source of influence on the thinking of the Founding Fathers was the Bible. Something like uh, 33% of all of the uh, quotations and references in their writings, and he did an important thing. He he excluded what are called election sermons. He, uh, he took out sermons that were given in Congress at the beginning and opening of sessions, where you'd have a invi- pastor invited to come in, and and he would uh, preach a sermon. He he excluded those. He also excluded quotations from Scripture that weren't specifically stated as Scripture, which is interesting because Scripture was so commonly known that many times there were verses that were quoted from the Scripture without citing the reference because it would just assume that, that everybody, knew, everybody knew what that was. So he discovered that 33% of these references were from the Founding Fathers, and, and then when you looked at all of the Enlightenment thinkers, people like uh, John Locke and Montesquieu, Rousseau, Diderot, and others, that when you looked at them, com- put all of them together, they only made up 22% of the references. So f- there were 50% more references to the Bible. And then he noted that even among the quotes of John Locke, who was the most frequently quoted Enlightenment thinker, that about 50% of the quotes in John Locke were taken also from the Bible and were allusions to the Bible. So the Bible was the number one influence 
on their thinking. And that's what I'm arguing. And I've, I've been studying this for 30 or 40 years, and I've said this that whole length of time, that I think it's wrong to say it was a technically Christian nation because what makes Christian Christian is an understanding of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God. And they didn't all believe that. But they weren't committed to a full-bore enlightenment thinking, which that idea has dominated uh, the study over the last, over the last uh, I don't know, 100 years or so, and it's only in the last 20 years that you see this change come along. So by calling it a Judeo-Christian worldview, we recognize that, that half of the bi- biblical quotes, more than half, probably 60% of the biblical references that influenced the founding fathers came out of the Hebrew scriptures, came out of the Old Testament, came out of Exodus and Leviticus, and came out of, for example, 1 Samuel chapter 8, those kinds of references. And then there's uh, two chapters in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 and also in uh, Romans chapter 13 where you have references in the Bible plus a couple of statements that, that Jesus made in the Gospels. So the primary reference was always to the, the Old Testament. So that's the Hebrew Scriptures. That's the Judeo part, the Judeo-Christian worldview. So it starts with, number one, God is the creator of all things and created human beings in his image and likeness. This goes to the area of ultimate reality. When we're looking at a worldview and we're asking questions, perhaps you ask these kinds of questions when you were young. Often little kids will ask this, well, where did I come from? They'll ask questions, is there a God? How do we know there's a God? Uh, Why don't we go to church? My friend goes to church. They they have these kinds of questions about, uh, about life. And ultimately, we all come to certain decisions about ultimate reality. Is there a God or are there multiple gods? Does anything or anyone lie behind the physical, natural world of nature? So we look out at the incredibly complex creation around us. We look at what's just been learned in our lifetimes about the nature of a molecule, the nature of an atom, and and all of the information that's that's involved in just that that one tiny, tiny particle. And we realize that there are subatomic particles and there's all kinds of things that are going on inside the atom and inside the molecule. We look at the human genome. We look at DNA and we see that there's, there's thousands and thousands of bits of information there that is communicated. They all have to come together in the right sequence at the right time in order for there to be life. And it's not just a matter of two or three things coming together. It's, it's a matter of perhaps hundreds of thousands or millions of things that have to come together all in the right sequence at the right time. And so that's why you have a lot of people who've come out, scientists who've come out in the last 40 years writing books uh, critiquing Darwin's whole view because it just doesn't hold water. He had a very simple uh, view of an atom and of a molecule. But if you follow Darwin to its logical conclusion, you end up with naturalism, that everything just happened by chance, and everything is just the product of of a by-chance electrical storm that hit a mass of protoplasm, and somehow it gave rise to something that was a little more complex, and that this had to happen several times in the right way for 
uh, life to start. And so ultimately you have a view where there is a person at the helm of the universe who created and the creation is totally distinct from him. Or you have a view where there's no person there. Everything is just a product of pure random chance. We have those who try to fall in the middle and they offer a view of of many gods and that was the ancient world that doesn't dominate much in the modern world but in the ancient world there were those who held to a pantheon of gods such as the Canaanites and the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and so this was a major problem for the Israelites that they believed in one God, the only God, the one-of-a-kind God and uh, they they didn't necessarily believe in a strict monotheism because the terminology that they use, for example, in Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But in recent translations of the Tanakh, they have uh, translated the word one, echad, as the word alone. And that fits the context better because the surrounding verses are dealing with a contrast between their God and the gods of the nations. And so it should be translated, I think, uh, God alone. So what lies behind the physical world and natural world? What is ultimately real? It, does everything just happen at, by by chance? Did and another view was the view of deism, where God came along and like a watchmaker, he builds the watch, winds it up, puts it on the table and goes away and has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the watch anymore. And that was the view of deism. And you'll often hear it taught that all of the founding fathers were basically deists. And I believe that's not true. I believe that they don't understand what deism was because uh, even... even <coughs> Thomas Paine, who's usually considered, if there's anybody's a deist, it's him, but he believed that, that there was providence and that God intervened in the affairs of men. That is not deism. It, what, basically what they held to was some degree of a rational theism, but it was heavily informed by the biblical concepts of who God is because these people grew up in solid Christian homes uh, almost exclusively. So the first step is this idea of God. So the Judeo-Christian worldview argues that God's a creator of all things, and he created human beings in his image and likeness, giving them value and purpose. The second point is that the Bible is God's revelation to man and is completely accurate in all that it reveals to man, teaching them how to live wisely in God's creation marred by sin. See, one of the corollaries to the first point is that when God created man and created him in his image, God could communicate to man because he created man as an image bearer, bearing his own image so that he could receive and transmit information to God. He, he created man so that man could understand God, God, man could talk to God, and they uh, would be on the same wavelength, so to speak. And so that is the second part, God's revelation. So that helps us to understand how we can know things. It's because God has revealed truth to us, a term that is used again and again in Scripture. It is a word that indicates something that is stable, 
something that is foundational, something that is certain and is not going to wobble. And the word or a form of the root for the Hebrew word that is translated as as uh, faithful or as uh, uh, truth is a word that is, describes the foundation stones under the pillars of Solomon's temple. So it communicates that idea of stability. And that's related to another idea that we have in Scripture. And that is the one that we find all the way through the, the Old Testament. We've studied it many times where God is depicted uh, as figuratively as a rock. We can count on God. It means he's stable, he's unchanging. And see, if we don't have the ultimate ground of our worldview on something that is immutable, then the opposite is what? It's changing, it's vacillating, it's uncertain, it's one way today and it's a different way tomorrow. And it's subject to the whims of of whatever. And so God's revelation, because it comes from his essence, is stable, it is truth, and it is a reliable guide, trustworthy guide for our lives and for our thinking. So that helps us to understand that second category of knowledge. How can we know that what we know is correct? And that will vary depending on our ultimate reality. If our ultimate reality is a personal God, then he guarantees the stability of our knowledge, the fact and reality of our knowledge. But if our ultimate reality is matter, can that really explain knowledge and the source of knowledge? When we think about knowledge that we count on, it's knowledge that extends across the centuries, across all of the barriers of time, and it is true across the cultures and across the centuries. It's the same for ancient Egyptians as it would be for uh, medieval Asians or for modern Americans. The third point is also related to that first point, that God created the human race in his image, both male and female. So the word that is used for God's original creation in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is a word that is only used of God's divine activity. That word is never used to describe the creative activity of man, the creative activity of a creature. And that word is only repeated a couple of other times in Genesis chapter 1, Often it just says God made, but he made out of that which he had brought forth from nothing. That is the original creation. But he uses that same distinctive verb. It's the Hebrew word bara. And he uses that again in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. We talks about God created the human race in his image. Both male and female are created in his image. That is a thought that is radically unique in the ancient world. In the pagan cultures, women were not on the same par as men. They were not equal with men. And yet from the very first chapter of the Hebrew Scriptures, men and women are created equal. Where do we hear that idea? That all men are created equal. And by men, in the Declaration of Independence, it wasn't talking about males, it was talking about all mankind, that we're created equal 
equal. There were how, what did they mean by that? Well, their worldview came out of the Bible. They're equally in the image of God and equally and fully human. The fourth, the fourth plank in a Judeo-Christian worldview is that man was created in perfection, lived in perfect environment, but when he disobeyed God and he sinned, it brought corruption into all of the universe. It corrupted his thinking. It corrupted his relationships. It corrupted his relationship uh, with his spouse. Adam's relationship with Eve was corrupted. Eve's relationship with, with Adam was corrupted. And it brought corruption into the relationship between the, uh, the man and the woman and the animals. So everything is corrupted. So we live in a fallen, corrupt world, and there's nothing that any human being can do to change that. They lived in a utopic environment in the Garden of Eden. But today we have various, various uh, worldviews that produce political systems, such as communism and socialism, that are predicated on the idea that man is basically good, not corrupted by sin. It's a rejection of the idea of sin. Man is corrupted by sin, and therefore... I mean, in a Judeo-Christian worldview, man is corrupted by sin, so man is not perfectible, and therefore society isn't perfectible. That the only way we'll have a perfect world again is when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming and establishes his kingdom. That man, fallen man, cannot establish a perfect system or perfect environment, and therefore sin must be restrained. Uh, but today in socialism and in communism, sin isn't the problem. The problem is uh, an unequal uh, division of wealth, and so that has to be resolved. And once that's resolved and everybody has the same thing, then we'll live in a utopic environment. And that is just a polar opposite from the thinking of the founding fathers. So socialism and communism, even mild forms, have no place in a Judeo-Christian worldview. The fifth view is that God has given principles and laws for the right conduct of the human race. This develops our sense of ethics, that there are principles that God embedded into creation. There are social principles, and we will refer to these and talk about these as divine institutions, and there are legal principles that restrain sin and provide as well for prosperity for the human race and security. And then the sixth view is that God continues, the sixth principle is that God continues to oversee and direct his creation toward his perfect end. That is known as providence, the providential care of God watching over his creation to bring it to his intended end. Now, some of this kind of thinking seems may seem over the head, over your head, or over the head of some people. They've never quite thought about a worldview before. They haven't thought in terms of these categories, but these categories are designed to help us think about every area of life, every area of our of our thinking. And one verse that we should pay attention to, actually, a couple of verses, is Second Corinthians chapter ten, verse five. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we have the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian believers. And remember, these are not uh, the picture of perfect Christians. They had all kinds of problems and all kinds of confusion. 
because they let pagan thought influence their thinking. And so Paul tells them, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So the biblical Judeo-Christian knowledge of God that Paul is building on, on the Old Testament and the New Testament, he says this is being attacked by all of these arguments and worldviews and religions out there in the world. It, th- those things exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And what we're to do is to bring every thought, every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That means everything that we think about and the way we think about it has to be brought into captivity to Christ. There is a biblical way to think about life, and there is a non-biblical way. There are many non-biblical ways to think about life. But I want to look also at the little bit of the broader context here, that uh, in verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, As believers, we don't do things the way the world does things. We have to do things the way God says to do things. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. In our thoughts, we have strongholds of human viewpoint. We have strongholds of different worldviews that need to be brought out into the light and that need to be addressed, and then we need to eradicate them. That's what he means by casting down arguments and bringing every thought into captivity for Christ. This is reminiscent of what Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and he said, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed. Don't let your ideas and your thoughts be conformed or pressed into the mold of the worldview of the non-believing world around you. Don't let the pagan value systems force you into their mold. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not by the renewing of your emotions or your feelings, but renewing how we think. We need to learn to think biblically. That's the whole focus. Don't be uh, conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may demonstrate that the will of God is good and accepted, acceptable and perfect. So as we look at this category of worldview, these are four basic areas to look at. What's our view of ultimate reality? Is it personal? Is it impersonal? Is it just the impersonal universe? What's, what's out there? And this also includes the idea of the nature of man. What you think about God or about ultimate reality determines what you think about man, what you think about human beings, the nature of human beings. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, you have the most elevated view of the individual, that men and women are both created equally in the image and likeness of God. And that's the starting point for understanding the nature of the human race. But the problem is that that's been marred. It's been corrupted by sin. And so there has to be a solution to that. And there has to be, through the governing powers, certain restraints put on human beings in order to uh, limit their evil, prevent 
criminality, prevent, if possible, uh, wars. That that all of this is going to inform our view of a nation that they are to internally restrain crime and externally provide for the defense of a nation from the nation's enemies. Those are two of the primary responsibilities for a nation that we will see. Second, we come to knowledge. Where do we know? How do we know things? How do we come to know truth? Is there truth? Is there absolute uh, capital T truth, or is it all just relative, and how do we know it? Third is the idea of ethics and standards. Where do we get our ideas, our values? Are we going to get them because it seems right to us? This was the problem during the period of the judges in the Old Testament. Twice in the book of Judges it states that every that there was no king in the land. The king represented that ultimate authority because in Israel at that time the king was God. So everybody had ignored God, rejected God, and so once you take God out of the picture, you're left with just a lot of different opinions. And so the text says everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it all but destroyed Israel. So ethics and then beauty, we won't talk much about this because it doesn't really enter in that much. What is beauty? How does it relate to knowledge? How does beauty relate to ultimate reality and the ideas of good and bad or right and wrong? So this is, this is our focal point. We have to think through uh, this idea of the foundations. What are these foundations? What is a Christian view? What is the Judeo-Christian view of, of reality, of knowledge, of ethics and beauty and so some of this is old hat to some of you. Some of this is very familiar, but we have to constantly rethink, rethink this. One of the early founders of our nation, a man whose not, name is not that commonly known, was a man by the name of James Wilson. Wilson was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was a drafter of the Constitution and he was a Supreme Court justices, uh, Supreme Court justice. In a lecture at the College of Pennsylvania, now the University of Pennsylvania, he asserted, of all governments, those are the best, which by the natural effect of their constitutions are frequently renewed or drawn back to their first principles. That's a very important statement. What he is saying is we need to constantly reevaluate, not for the purpose of changing, but reevaluate what we are doing as a people and with our government to make sure we are still true to our first principles. Once we depart from those first principles, then the whole edifice that has been built on them is in danger of crumbling. So... We're going to start by looking at what the Scripture teaches about God, what's the Judeo-Christian view of God, and then we're going to uh, look at what the founders thought about God to see how that stacks up. So, first of all, first characteristic I want to talk about is that God is a personal, infinite God. This is usually hyphenated. He is both personal, that means he can relate individually and personally to each and every 
sentient being. Now, there's a term that's probably not familiar with, to a lot of people. Sentient means they're capable of rational thought and communication. So he can, think, he can communicate and have a relationship with his angels, their sentient beings, and with mankind. Those are the only two categories of sentient beings. He is personal. That means that he is a person. This doesn't mean he's finite. It means that he has, he is capable of personal relationships, relationships with individuals. It also indicates that he has intellect and will. He thinks. He knows things. In the case of God, we know he knows all things. He is omniscient. And he thinks, but he doesn't think like we think. In Isaiah, Isaiah quotes God. God says, uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. But God is able to communicate with us in a finite way that we can understand. We can't know God exhaustively. We can't know everything there is to know about God. But we can know truth about God. We can know God in a finite way. So he is, he has intellect, he has will, he makes decisions. Again and again in Scripture, we hear of the plans of God, the will of God. He is a person. He is not impersonal. He, he is not a force. He is not uh, limited in any way and unable to communicate to his creatures. He communicates to his creatures because in terms of his sentient creatures with man, man is created in his image and likeness, so man was specifically designed to be able to communicate with God. He, that was his intent. Also, he, as he communicates to his creatures, he can receive their communication, such as in prayer. And so there is a two-way communication that takes place uh, with God. We also know that he, he loves and he is loved. So his sentient creatures can enjoy a personal relationship with him. Now, can you think of some examples in Scripture where we see God engaged in a personal relationship with his creatures? Well, first picture we have of God is that he creates uh, Adam and then Eve. And then in Genesis 3, 8 to 11, we're told that when God came to walk in the garden and they indication from the Hebrews this was a daily expected normative pattern with God but something was different this day because uh, Adam and the woman had disobeyed God and eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil later on in just a couple of other chapters in Genesis 5:22, we learn of God walking with Enoch uh, he walked with Enoch and then one day he walked with Enoch and Enoch was not he just walked off into heaven uh, with God. Genesis 18.1 is just one of numerous examples where God communicates and talks, develops his personal relationship with Abraham. But in Genesis 18.1 and following, God comes to speak to Abraham, and with him are some angels, two angels, and they sit down and they eat and they have a meal of fellowship with Abraham. And then with Moses, we're told that God spoke with Moses not like the not like the others, but mouth to mouth or face to face. 
God had a, that personal, more intimate relationship with Moses. And there are many, many other examples of that all through the uh, Old Testament and into the New Tes- Testament. Now, that's a very different concept of ultimate reality and of God than you find in, let's say, deism. In deism, you have a God who can create everything, but once he creates it, he just winds it up, lets it go, and goes off somewhere else and has no more relationship with that creation. He is uh, more impersonal and distant. He is not involved with his creatures. Other worldviews that have developed since the 19th century, such as naturalism, which excludes any form of supernaturalism, any form of of God or gods, and this is typical of uh, non-theistic evolution, uh, evolutionary views. So you have Darwinism and most evolutionary views uh, have no ultimate personal reality. Everything is just matter. In Eastern pantheistic monism, you have a lot of finite gods, but there's no personal relationship whatsoever. And in postmodernism, nobody really knows what they have. Everybody has their own thing. And when you don't have a personal, an ultimate personal absolute, then there's no basis for understanding personhood. There's no value placed on personhood. When you look at, uh, honestly, within a, an evolutionary viewpoint, a Darwinistic viewpoint, there's no basis for asserting value of human beings because they're just a cosmic accident. Every form of life is the result of a cosmic accident. That there is no more value to a human being than there is to an amoeba. There's no more value to a human being than there is uh, to a virus or to a, uh, some other form of bacteria. And so if you can stamp out bacteria, well, you can stamp out human beings. It just really doesn't matter. This view was originally called social Darwinism. Social Darwinism was a major plank in the worldview of the Nazis in Nazi Germany came out of the same background of thinking in in uh, Western Europe that gave birth to, to Nazism. You can trace that. Many people have done that. And after World War II, when people saw that social Darwinism was the uh, rationale for the Holocaust, the rationale for saying that that Jews were a subhuman race, they were not the same race as other human beings. That that they they saw where that led. So they said, "Oh, social Darwinism is is evil. It is wicked. It has nothing to do with Darwinism." And they just uh, asserted by fiat that there was no relationship, but but there is, and it continues to crop up in totalitarian systems that are that deny God and have a system that is that is ultimately based on evolution. The only value comes from power or wealth. So God is a personal God in Christianity and in Judaism. He is a personal God. He is also infinite. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is depicted as infinite. That means he has no limits, no boundaries in relation to uh, space or time. For example, in Job 11, 7 through 9, can you search out the deep things of God? 
Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? Well, the way the question is asked, the answer is no. You can't find the limits of the Almighty because there are no limits. They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They're deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. There is no boundaries for God in either space or time. As such, the Judeo-Christian God is omnipresent. He is fully and equally present to every part of his creation all of the time throughout all of eternity. He is without bonds in time. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen says, For thus says the high and lofty one, that's another term for God, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. That's a powerful metaphor there. He inhabits eternity. He, that, that is the same as saying he is eternal, whose name is holy. Holy has the idea of being set apart or unique or distinct. That's the core meaning of the Hebrew word. Thus says the high and lofty one, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Those who are humble are those who submit to the authority of God. Uh, Jesus in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Paul, Paul says that he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. That's what humility is. It is obedience to authority. What did Satan do? He rejected the authority of God and rebelled against God. God exists outside the boundaries of space and time in 1 Kings 8.27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? This is in a passage where Solomon is talking uh, with God and uh, he's going to build the, t- the temple. And he's, uh, God said, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. This is Solomon talking. He's praying to God. I know that the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. God is, you can't contain him. There are no limits to him. Psalm 147.5, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. So this relates to his knowledge. It is without bounds. It is, he is omniscient. He knows all things. There are no limits to him. Then the Bible represents this God as the creator, the creator of all things. Of course, Genesis 1.1 through 2.25 talks about how God created the heavens and the earth, that he is the creator. As Exodus 20 verse 11 says, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. What, what else is there if you, besides the heavens and the earth? That includes everything. He made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Nothing is left out in the word all. It includes everything. All that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and, and hallowed it. So the claim in the Old Testament is that God is the unique and distinct creator of all things. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. What is Genesis 1, 3 said? And God spoke by his word. 
the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. All the host, everything that we see in the heavens, everything was made by God. Nehemiah 9, 6, when Nehemiah is praying to God, he says, you alone are Yahweh. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything on it the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. That's, a, that's providence. The host of heaven worships you. Isaiah 40, verse 12, talking about uh, God said, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. No, no one can do this weighed the mountains and scales and the hills and the bounds. It's using the metaphor of a builder to describe the extent of God's knowledge and ability in constructing the earth and the universe. And then in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, we read, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? I mean, he's saying, you know, you're, you're the creature's. I'm I'm immense. I'm infinite. You can't contain me. You can't build something for these things. Anything you build for me, my hands made. All those things my hands made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look. On him who is poor or humble. This is not talking about poverty financially or economically. It is talking about someone who is humble. A humble and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. And in the New Testament, we see that this is applied also to Jesus, that he is the Son of God, and and he is the hymn to which this passage refers. For everything was created by him. God the Father is the architect. God the Son is the building supervisor. And God the Holy Spirit is the one involved in overseeing the project, all three members of the Trinity. But that gets us into a Christian theistic worldview. But many of the founders were devout, devout believers. Colossians 1, 16 to 18, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. That is known as sustaining his creation. God the Son sustains and preserves the creation. If the second he stops, all of the molecules would blast apart, all of the atoms would disintegrate, everything would go into pure nothingness. He sustains and keeps it all. There's nothing that man can do to destroy God's creation, for it is the Lord Jesus Christ who holds it together and sustains it. A second, or third actually, way in which God is described in the Old Testament is that he is the redeemer of Israel. Often Christians may think that the view of God as a redeemer is a New Testament concept and related to Jesus Christ's work on the cross. But in the Hebrew scriptures, there is the preparation for understanding this concept of redemption. In the Hebrew scriptures, redemption is part of the very, or grounded in the very nature of God. The oldest of the books written in the Old Testament, I think that possibly it could have been written by Moses. 
Uh, it certainly tells the story of Job that puts him in roughly the time period of Jacob, the time period of, of um, maybe Isaac and Jacob sometime in the patriarchal period, but it may not have been written down until Moses wrote. We have no way of knowing who wrote it, but it's probably the earliest of the of the scriptures that were written. And yet Job, living at the same, roughly the same time as Isaac and Jacob, says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. He has an understanding that God the Redeemer is a living God. My Redeemer lives, and then he knows there's a future. See, that's another part of a worldview. It tells us that history has meaning and purpose and direction that is overseen by God. That he, the Redeemer, shall stand at last on the earth. He didn't understand there would be two times. The first coming of Christ when he was crucified and the second coming when he establishes his kingdom. Job 19.26, and after my skin is destroyed, that is, after he dies, he goes into the grave, and he decomposes, he says, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. So he knows that that his flesh will decompose, and it will be uh, dust to dust and ashes to ashes, but but God's going to restore that flesh, and in his flesh he's going to have all of his capacities, and he will see God and have that personal relationship uh, with God. In Isaiah uh, chapter 54, verse 5, Isaiah writes, For your maker is your husband. He's talking about Israel. Who made Israel? God did. He is a Yahweh of hosts is his name. When did God make Israel? He calls out the people under Abram in Genesis chapter 12. He's the father of the people. But the nation is brought out of Egypt when God redeems them from slavery. That is the, that is the archetype of redemption in the Old Testament. God the Redeemer redeemed, purchased Israel from slavery in Egypt. He's the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He's the one who made Israel and made Israel his bride. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. In Isaiah 44, 24, thus says Yahweh, your redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. See, the same idea. God the Redeemer formed Israel. When did that happen? It happened at the Exodus event. In Isaiah 41, 14, Fear not, you worm, Jacob. See, God is uh, rebuking Israel at this point. So, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says Yahweh, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I see there a hint of two persons, the the Lord Yahweh and the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, who would be the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. See, there's again a hint of two persons. I am the first, I am the last beside me. There is no God. Now, this impacted the founding fathers. This is, uh, they had a contest to see who could come up with the national seal, and this was Thomas Jefferson's a stab at it. It was not accepted. Uh, his motto for the nation was rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. So he clearly has an understanding of God. 
But he, look at the depiction here. Here is the burning bush from Exodus. Here you have uh, the Red Sea. Here you have the Egyptians here that are being drowned in the Red Sea. And over here, Moses. Because this was a familiar image that was used during the founding of the nation, that, that it was compared to the deliver, God's deliverance of the Jews uh, from, from slavery in Egypt and from tyranny. Uh, the Lord is viewed as the lawgiver. Isaiah 33:22. the Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. James 4:12 in the New Testament, there is only one lawgiver, and that is how the, the founding fathers understood God to be the one who provided the basis for law. And then we get into the, uh, the idea of, of providence. And this is the idea that, that God is the uh, rules over his creation. It combines his sovereignty with his wisdom that God provides a protective care over all of his creation. In Matthew 5.45, it says that he provides the sun for both the, the evil and the good, and he provides rain on the just and the unjust. So providential care of God is part of our Judeo-Christian worldview. And then we have the view of man that we've already talked about this, that man is created in the image and likeness of God and is to rule over God's creation of the earth. Verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So what he's saying is God created the human race in his own image, and specifically male and female. But the problem is that all have fallen short of the glory of God. So as we wrap up, I want to just give you a few things to show you how this informed the thinking of the founding fathers. Mark David Hall has written a book that just came out this last year called Did America Have a Christian Founding? He is a Christian, but he is a researcher and and professor at a uh, secular university, not at a Christian school. But he, like a number of scholars in recent, recent years, have come out arguing Uh, And I like the way he put it, a Christian founding. What he means is what I've been saying, that it's a worldview. It wasn't uh, founded uh, in a a specific denominational format. And he says in 1776, every colonist, with the exception of about 2,000 Jews, that's all there were in the colonies at that time, with the exception of about 2,000 Jews, identified himself or herself as a Christian approximately 98% of them were Protestants. And the vast number of those Protestants were uh, uh, Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. Approximately 98% of them were Protestants, and the remaining 2% were Roman, Roman Catholics. Sidney Alstrom, who wrote a massive tome on the history of Christianity in America, is one, one of the most respected, on all sides, one of the most respected uh, church historians in the mid-20th century said that 75% of American colonists were brought up in the Calvinist tradition. That's like John Adams. That's how he was brought up in a strict uh, strict Calvinist church. That, But he changed as he got older. He was influenced by the rationalist ideas of the 
of the Enlightenment, so that by the time he is an old man, he's not too sure about the deity of Christ and some other things, but he has a Judeo-Christian worldview. We saw that one of the primary aspects of a Judeo-Christian worldview is God's a creator. Well, the Declaration of Independence begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. What that meant was all mankind, not all males. They got that from Genesis 1.27. And they are endowed by their creator. See, they didn't, mankind didn't happen by chance. They were created by God, and God endowed them with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, if you don't have a personal God who created the human race in his image and likeness and created them equal, then there's no really ba real basis for talking about equality, and there's certainly no basis for talking about unalienable rights. This is a critical statement. Rights come from a cre either come from a creator or they come from within creation. You either get them because the creator endowed you with it, or you get it because somebody in the creation, either the populace votes on them or the government lets you have them or something like that. But if you get rid of God, the creator, then wipe out what made America, America, what made America the beacon of life and hope for the world. Why everybody wants to come into America isn't because uh, we're communist. It isn't because we're fascists. It isn't because we're Nazis. It's because we're none of those things. We stand for something specific. And if you do away with the doctrine of God the creator, then you destroy this country. Franklin, Benjamin Franklin at the 1787 Constitutional Convention stood up and proposed that they have prayer. Prayer had fallen by the wayside. This is a great story. It was preserved by James Madison. And he addressed the president of the convention. He said, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks of close attendance and continual reasonings with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many no's as eyes." is, methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. See, there he reflects a view of the corruption of man as a result of sin. We indeed seem to feel our own want of political wisdom. Some we have been running about in search of it. We have gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different forms of those republics which have been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution now no longer exist. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe but find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? That understanding of God as the Father of light is, comes right out of the Bible, that God is the one who must illuminate our understanding. That's our view of knowledge. He says, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. That's not deism. 
Franklin is often accused of deism, but he, he, he is here talking about the providence of God and God's intervention in the affairs of man. That is not deism. He said, our prayers, sir, were heard. He believed in answered prayer. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were in re- engaged in, this, in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. Now, that doesn't mean he's a believer in Christ and going to heaven, but he has a Judeo-Christian worldview. That is how he thinks about life. He says, to that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? That's God. He says, I have lived for a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, Is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter, from this unfortunate instance, despair of establishing governments, but be human wisdom, and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. That's a powerful statement. Washington, a letter to his brother, talks about what happened with his uh, uh, battle with the French and Indians and talks about how he had four bullets through his coat and two horses shot out from under him, but it was due to the dispensation of providence that he was protected. John Adams, writing to his wife Abigail, said, I must submit all my hopes and fears to an overruling providence in which, unfashionable as the faith may be, I firmly believe. You see, when you look at the categories of what we found in the ultimate reality of God in the Judeo-Christian worldview, that is exactly what the founding fathers held to. That is the ultimate foundation without which the edifice will crumble. Next time we'll look at the worldview a little more. Father, thank you for this time together. Help us to understand the things that we have studied. Give us insight into the founding of our nation, the thinking of the founders, and how that should be reflected in how we vote. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.